for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Sidden. Uh, I serve uh, as an elder here at Christ Community Church. Our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your goodness, the mercy and grace that you've beautifully demonstrated in the story of the prodigal son. We thank you for the boundless love you've shown to us through Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. And we thank you for the joyful hope we have, anticipating the celebration of Thanksgiving when we join you in heaven. Please give us the heart to live and share the good news with our family, our friends, our neighbors. I thank you for Pastor Patrick and his love and dedication to our church family. And please speak your divine truth to us through him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Michael. Church, you may be seated. Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are we doing? Awesome. It's cold, but we are warm in here. And I'm thankful that you're uh, joining with us to worship in spirit and in truth. It's exciting that we get to exalt Christ in such a capacity as one voice. So I'm glad you, everyone's here. Uh, Pastor Jeff called me on uh, Friday night and said, hey, guess what? I'm not preaching on Sunday, but you are. I'm just kidding. That's not how it went down. No, we're, this is supposed to be the beginning of our a new series that Pastor Jeff has been excited to talk about called Resilient as we look at being strong in our faith and our worldview despite the worlds. And it's exciting to be a part of that. So in the next couple of weeks, that will come out. But this morning, a little bit of a filler. But nonetheless, it's, it's a filler that I have always in the back of my mind. It's something that I cannot shake. It's a passage of scripture that is scandalous and it has afflicted me and it has warned me. It challenged me to this day. And so as you're joining with me, it's a familiar passage. Luke 15 is well known. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We've heard it. But this is a passage that for me, I knew I was supposed to love, but I couldn't enjoy it. I knew it was true, but I didn't want it to be true. And it took a long time for the Lord to soften my heart to receive the joy and the celebration that it proclaims. And so, brothers and sisters, today, what Jesus is going to do in this passage, and, and the reason why it, it was painful for me, and it may be still for you, is that Jesus deconstructs our world and then reconstructs the world the way he created it to be. He deconstructs the way we think things operate, the way things should happen, and then he recreates the way he wants it to happen and how he created it to happen. And the basis for this recreation and deconstruction is our relationship to God the Father. How does the Father view me? And how should I view the Father? And so ultimately this chapter I think is scandalous. Luke chapter 15, we know it well, and so we familiarized ourselves with the story to an extent that we may forget the purpose of what it was intended to do, but to afflict and to comfort those who found themselves in positions that they needed to leave. See, Jesus does not permit the leaders around him nor the people around him to continue being gods unto themselves or to be lost forever. 
Jesus is going to call people to himself. And so as a kid, I remember growing up and, and, and coming to a grips in junior high wondering, why did they kill Jesus? I don't know if you've ever thought that, okay? And when I look back on elementary school and, and kids ministry, I was taught some awesome, amazing stories that Jesus was a healer, he was a helper, and he was a friend, and I could never really equate, why did they want to kill him? Luke 15 is the reason why they wanted to kill him. Because he challenged something that was established. He wanted to change the game the way it should have been played, but the players and the rule holders at that time thought differently. This passage is why Jesus goes to the cross. And that is a blessing for some, and it is trouble for others. And so this morning, as we're jumping into John, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 15, John chapter 15 is my other passage. They're just chapter 15s are in my life. It's perfect. So forgive me if I say John 15. It just so happens that that's another one. But Luke chapter 15, I, I pray that you open and avail your heart to what the Lord has to instruct us. There will be a temptation, and I'll mention this in a bit, but as we listen to any sermon, specifically this one, we instantly go to who should hear this along with us, all right? We instantly think of the person that needs to hear this message. You need to hear this message. This is for you, and it is for me. This sermon isn't hard to prep and prepare because it's always in the back of my mind as a comfort and affliction stewing together. And it has been a time of reflection and a time of confession for me over the past 24 hours. Before we jump into Luke 15, I would like for you to pray with me. Our Lord and our God, as a sustainer of the universe, Lord, I would ask that you sustain our head and our heart, that you give us wisdom and insight into the state in which we relate to you how we perceive our relationship with you and that you may deconstruct what is wrong and reconstruct what is right. So Jesus be the teacher this morning. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear how you graciously love us and long to celebrate us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there's no slides, so you're, we're going old school today. You have to have your Bible to follow along, all right? We've trained you, and we've made it easy to put it on the screen. Nothing's going to be on the screen today. So if you have your Bible on your phone or in your book, open up with me to Luke chapter 15, okay? Luke chapter 15. And we read verses 1 and 2. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, I want to say the first two verses. Now, whatever happens the rest of the sermon, give me the next five to six minutes, and you can fall asleep, you can watch football, you can do whatever you want, and tune back in, and you'll be, you, won't, you won't be lost. You'll be fine, okay? So give me the next six to seven minutes to explain why these first two verses matter the most. The, the message doesn't come out of this, but the substance of the message is made in these first two verses. And that's because we start things off by Jesus say, by Luke telling us that there are tax collectors and sinners being drawn to Jesus. Now, when we think of tax collectors, if you, were, if you grew up in the church, something should pop into your mind. Maybe a little, a little song that goes something like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, so we get, we've heard this story. And then at the end, what's the message that we're taught? The reason why tax collectors aren't liked is because they robbed from their friends. So they took a little bit extra and kept it for themselves. Now, bad, yes? Yeah, that's bad. That's not even a third of how bad it really was to be a tax collector. Who did you collect taxes for? Ooh, the Roman Empire. The big baddies of the Bible, okay? It's really the Pharisees, but nonetheless, the Pharisees thought it was Rome. Rome was brutal. 
The Roman Empire ruled from England to Egypt. Now, how do you govern and rule a land that big without video conferences, telephones, all of that stuff? How do you rule that? With an iron fist. By subjugating the people you conquered. I'm living in Idaho and and finding out that there's this independent streak. I know there's some friends that live in the north that if things go south, they have, there's an idea. We're going to create our own little fiefdom, all right? We're going to create our own little world and we're going to leave the crazy people out. Uh, The irony is in that statement. Uh, and, and, And the United States, the federal government and the state of Idaho isn't really too worried about that. One, they'll find out pretty fast and the response is super quick. And they don't stand a chance. However, in the ancient world, a rebellion might happen in one corner of the empire, and it would take months, if not years, to have something respond to that, and rebellions can grow. So how do you ensure that rebellions don't take place? You crush them as they begin. You have to have a massive, massive army. The very people that you've subjugated now become the people that pay for their own subjugation. And Rome doesn't walk around uh, the streets and going like, like jury Dewey pulling a name out of the hat. Hey, you get to be tax collector today. That's not how it works. A tax collector is someone who's paid for the right to collect taxes. There is someone who has desired the ability to take from their neighbors and pay for the subjugation of their neighbors. This is the lowest of the low. Rome raped, pillaged, and destroyed the ancient world. We romanticize the empire of Rome It should not be. And a tax collector is being drawn to Jesus. This lowest of the low, the anathema of society, the betrayer, Paul, uh, not Paul Revere, uh, Benedict Arnold couldn't even be looked at compared to a tax collector. We don't have the moral equivalent of someone entering into this stage where you know the person who is effectively ensuring that you are under the thumb of Rome. We don't have that. And so these tax collectors who have been ostracized by their neighbors for their own choices, mind you, it was their decision to do it, and they've reaped the reward of that, are being drawn to the message of Jesus. But that's not all who was. It was the tax collectors and sinners. Now, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, yay, we're all sinners. We might think that when reading this, but that's not the case. A sinner in this context was a class of people. A sinner was someone who was born with a deformity, is somewhat unclean, has rebelled in some capacity to be a debaucherer, an an adulterer, a prostitute. A sinner was a class of people. This is the lowest of low society. This is the avoidable that's best uh, seen and not heard. And you know what? Just not seen as well. Why don't we just include that? These are the people who are being drawn to Jesus. The message of the gospel that he is proclaiming when it is faithfully preached, the most outcast of any culture and society is being drawn to Jesus. That's true to this day. One of the major complaints against the church that I've heard from well-to-do people is that's just a crutch for broken people. Do you know what? They're absolutely right. 100% true. The broken, the ruined soul, those that are in need of repair of their life or an escape from the lowest of the low settings are drawn to the message of Jesus because it is grace. Something will change and transform them out of what they are to something they would rather be. 
But that's not the only part of the crowd. That's just one half. Who else is there? The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if I may be frank, they're better than you or I. They are better at us at their worst day than we are on our best. They knew it and they knew how to act, how to speak, how to, how to interact with people and follow the laws, the statutes. They did it the best. They walked with a swagger. They were the pinnacle of their societal desire and they were strict. They were devoted people. You think we're devoted? Far from it. They are a mark of what devotion really looks like. Maybe devotion to the wrong thing or for the wrong motives, but nonetheless, they show and demonstrate a devotion that we, can only, we can't even fathom in our day and age. If they're not supposed to walk on the Sabbath in case it was too much work, they would just choose, uh, I'm just not going to walk. I don't even want to come close to the line. But no matter how strict or devoted we think we are, they are without a doubt the image and the ideal person that one ought to be. They had memorized parts of scripture that you probably haven't even read. Anybody here try to get through the book of Leviticus? Mm, I start out strong. I get to chapter 5. I'm like, no, that's it. No, I'm going to the Gospels. This is it. <laughs> it's God's word. They have it memorized. We can't even get through it. Do you see the polar opposites of what's taking place in this, these parables? There are three parables we're going to talk about. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It's three parts to the same story. It's speaking to both camps. The lowest of the low and the best of the best. Jesus is deconstructing both of their worlds and reconstructing the way he intended it to be. And so as we go through these parables, part of the mindset is to recognize what's the reaction to the people after Jesus said this? What is he afflicting them with or what is he comforting them with? And as we stand here today, you and I are somewhere in between. Some of us here are full of self-loathing and uncertainty and doubt because of the choices we made or made for us, that we think our lot in life is stuck. And there is no hope. Even the message of Christ saving us just gets us across the line, but we can't have joy like the other, the best of the best, who, who, was, who grew up in the church, who knows everything to do, who has an infinite seemingly amount of knowledge. And yet Jesus often is going to afflict that person and recognize you too need something. You need something that you don't have, but you think you have over here. You need something that you know you don't have, but you don't think you can get. And so Jesus speaks to both. And I want you to think and avail your heart that what Jesus is about to do is compare us to the father. For some, it will result in, in an ease in which we receive the blessing of what God thinks of us. The other, it's hard because the self-righteous walks with a swagger because we compare ourselves with our, our foolish neighbor or half-witted cousin and say, oh, at least I'm better than them. But God is comparing us to his holiness, not anybody else's. I can only, you can probably guess where I stand and where I'm, I'm the firstborn and I grew up in church. Where do you think I land? in this story. Yeah, I'm a Pharisee. But where are you? And so as you place yourself in one of this, in this paradigm, I want you to think of Jesus' words. As he speaks to you, what reaction is he drawing forth out of you? 
And so Jesus begins to speak to this crowd. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them and does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or or, or the woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And so you're in the crowd and you hear Jesus's words. To the lowest of the low, to the self-loathing and the doubtful, they hear a message that someone wants to seek after that which is lost. Think about being raised in a culture in which you are not sought after or even thought of as being able to be rescued. And Jesus begins to proclaim a message. There is someone out there who looks for that which is lost. Now notice it's one out of a hundred and then one out of ten. Jesus seems to be increasing in the the importance of what happens. One sheep out of a hundred, not that big of a deal. I mean, it is in sense, but at the risk of losing the 99... What's being described here is not that God wants to have the lost person because he lost his property. It's because he values the sheep. That lost sheep is worthy. It's valuable to him. He cherishes it. And so the shepherd goes and finds. And then what's the result? It's rejoicing. Verse 7 is really powerful. So think of this reaction. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't repent. If you're in one crowd, what do you hear? Someone wants to rejoice over me? Someone wants to throw a party around me? And on the other end, there's a little bit of an affliction. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on one second. Um, You're going to celebrate that? Why not, why not celebrate the one who's doing the things that are already right? And what Jesus is saying, I want to celebrate when someone, something is lost and then it is found. Same with the lost coin. This wasn't a lot of money. Ten, this is 10 days wages. So she loses one coin. It's not really that important. And yet she ransacks her house to find one coin. And then what's the result? I found that which is precious. And she invites others to come celebrate the finding of that which is lost. And so if you're in one crowd, you're hearing for the first time, because culturally you're not going to hear it from anybody else, I want to find that which is lost. I want to find that which is on the outside, that is obscured, that is unwanted, and I want to bring it in. I want to celebrate the person or the thing that has never been celebrated. And on the other hand, what are you beginning to hear a bit of an affliction? Wait, someone doesn't want to celebrate me? That's kind of how it works. You, You celebrate me. This is the image of what you're supposed to be. Why don't we just point to it and say, good job? No, that's not how it works. We're going to celebrate that which is lost, that has been found. And so now Jesus comes with the the hammer. He set everything up. 
And I want to present something really miraculous in this. The scandalous grace of God rejoices when whatever is lost is found. God's grace in of itself is not scandalous, but the way we perceive it based on the way our world currently works because of the sin it's been subjected to has a difficulty in understanding why would God want to celebrate what is broken? Why does God want to rejoice over that which has rebelled? That's scandalous to us. Especially if we live in a culture that has a pick yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder, do it right, and then, maybe then, I'll give you the time of day. And so Jesus is afflicting both camps. Then he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country and he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work from one of his, for one of his, the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Oh, and he longed to fill uh, himself from the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's workers had more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. Growing up in that culture in that age, you would hear this story and Jesus would be telling a story. Even if you're in the middle, if you're not in one of these camps, you'd be hearing this and you'd be scratching your head like, this is not true. This is not the way it works. I I don't know. I know you grew up here, but let me inform you. A son does not speak to the father this way. A son does not look at the father and say, I would prefer you dead. I cannot wait. So can we just speed up the process? I want what's mine and what's coming to me. A father in those day and age would have the right to punish, beat, if not kill his son for the dishonor he brought up on his name. In an in honor your father and mother country, that is not the way it goes. And yet Jesus is telling a story that should afflict everybody in this moment, that there is an alternative way that Jesus is presenting. And yet think about the two camps. How would they respond to this first part of the story? Yeah, I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to make choices that lead to destruction. I know that this is my lot in life. I've made those choices. I've squandered wealth. I've refused to obey. I have lived in rebellion. Or it's been subjugated upon me. There's no hope. They would read the beginning of that story and think to themselves, yeah, that's how it works. At least the outcome. But on the other side, what are you beginning to hear? All right, cool. Those first two stories we're questioning, but I like the where this is going. This is good. I think we can do this. The amazing, the amazing thing about God in this moment, as he's been referenced by the Father, is that God, God's grace allows people to exhaust themselves in their rebellion. God's grace allows people to exhaust themselves in their rebellion. That's what's taking place with the younger brother. Because that shouldn't be. I mean, even as a parent, I think to myself, I will do whatever I must to ensure my kid does not run that route. I will be a brick wall. The father doesn't work that way. He allows his creation, his children, to exhaust themselves in their rebellion. Look what it says in Romans chapter 1. 
Down in verse 24, therefore God delivered them over to their desires of their heart to sexual immorality so that their bodies were dredged, um, degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forevermore. This is God's MO. This is the way he works. He allows his creation to exhaust themselves in the rebellion. Why? Why does he do so? A little later in Romans 8, it's delivered for us, for I consider, or verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who's subjected him in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage. Why does God allow his creation to exhaust themselves in the rebellion? It is in hope that they recognize that that way of living is not satisfying. That there is something greater in hope. Hollywood funny man. I, I know this is kind of strange that I jumped to this, but Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody got everything they want so they would finally realize it doesn't matter. That, that's the same MO. What does scripture say in Galatians 6, 7, and 8? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A man who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature reaps destruction. But the man who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. This is the way it works. God allows his creation to exhaust themselves in the rebellion so that what? Luke 15 comes along. That there may be one or two or a few. How, how many? Verse 17. When he came to his senses. When he realized this is not what I want. Everything that I have pursued has not resulted in the desired outcome I had wanted. And both camps would hear, yeah, that's where I'm at. I've longed, I've come to my senses long ago. I, I've recognized the error of my ways, but I have no way to change it. There's nothing I can do about it. And over here, yeah, that's the point. God is a God of vengeance, and this is what's happening. This is what you get when you rebel. But the story doesn't end. The younger brother came to his senses, recognized he's dying of hunger. In verse 18, I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. Now, you've all experienced this. If you're older or even in high school, maybe this was you this past weekend. You're out a little bit past curfew and you're on your way home. You know someone is waiting up for you. And so you begin to rehearse the story. I know it's going to be bad. Can I make it just a little bit better? So I don't know if the son here is truly repentant. I don't know if he's really humble, but he takes the steps and he returns. So repentance is turning and walking in another direction. And that's what the younger son does. And he begins to rehearse the, the interaction he's going to have with the father. He does want to admit that he is wronged and he is sinned. To what extent? No one knows. That's not the point of the story. But you and I have that rehearsal process. I'll come to God. I'll plead my case so I can get what I want. That may be just as simple as what's taking place here. But what do each camp experience? Over here, what's it going to cost the younger son? What's the cost of reconciliation? I know what it costs when I left, but what's it going to cost to go back? I'm going to have to repent, but what is the father going to say, do? And I know I deserve all of it, but what's it going to cost me? And over here, 
Oh, this is going to hurt. Uh, this, this, is the, this is it. This interaction will prove that we are right. The decisions that I have made to live life as I have done will vindicate me. Not that I need help vindicated. I can vindicate myself. And so the son returns to the father thinking through constantly, what's it going to cost me? What's it going to look like? Even just being a son will be good enough. I mean, a servant will be good enough. But verse, 19, uh, verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. And so they began to party. And so the son coming back, thinking, what is it going to cost me? As he sees the father, the father's filled with compassion. The father isn't angry, isn't upset. He doesn't think about what I need to respond to. He sees the son and runs towards him. He pulls up his tunic and runs. Embraces the son. The son begins to tell the story. But the father could care less what the son has to say. The father doesn't even acknowledge the story. What does he say to his, hey, servants, uh, robe, ring, sandal, steak. That's what I want. That's what, it's, that's what we're doing right now. So what did it cost? It cost the son nothing. This whole story this, has cost the son nothing but to experience the destruction of his choices. That's the only cost the son has experienced so far. Because when in thinking, what is it going to cost for the reconciliation? What's it going to take to be reconciled right here? It's all the father's payments. The father was the one who, who lost it all. He was the one who paid for the, the son's leaving, all the shame. But in the returning, what does the father experience? The father passes off and pays the penalty of the shame. It's the father's robe that he gives the son. It's the father's ring that he gives to the son. It's the father's sandals. It's the sacrifice of the father's own livestock to celebrate and the party. So what is this communicating? The father desires to celebrate the son. For the father, the cost doesn't matter. The cost is worthy if the son can be celebrated because he's returned. He was once dead, but now is alive. And he looks at him and says, you are my son. Look, the son just wanted to be a servant. But the father says, I don't want you as a servant. I will only take you back as a child. With all the authority, with all the blessings, the father delights in saving. And if you're in this camp, what have you heard for the first time? There's a way out. I, I, I can be a part of this. The father wants to celebrate me. The father cherishes me. The father will pay the cost. He will offer the price. I just need to come. Yes, it is that simple. But the other crowd hears the exact thing that undoes their hope. 
So what am I doing? What's the point then? Hasn't hasn't there been anything good that I have done? For what purpose do I continue to live and to follow? Well, Jesus afflicts this, but nonetheless, the father wishes to celebrate the son's arrival. I have to ask a question. Is that true for you? Or is it just true for another person? Do you believe the father wants to celebrate you? Wants to rejoice over you coming back to him? Or is that just for another person? Or that's the way it works for a few and Jesus lets them out. And for some reason, some shape or form, uh, it's, it's not going to happen for me. Well, throughout the history of scripture, we see time and time again, the father cherished those who rebel against him. King David, what's the title given to him by God? A man after God's own heart. Man, I would, I would love that to be said over me. I'm not, if anybody here chooses that, you ha- I'm going to have to talk to you after. But God has given this to David, and yet what did David do? He's an adulterer, and then he had the wife's husband killed. He's an adulterer and a murderer. You can't out David. I mean, we may try and say, yeah, I've committed adultery, and David would say, have you killed anybody yet? Come talk to me when you do. And yet he's been given the title, a man after God's own heart. That is scandalous to you and I even to this day. If we put it in the context that he is also a murderer and an adulterer, and yet he's been given the title by God, a man after God's own heart? How is that possible? Because we're told that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might inherit the righteousness of God. And so God looks at David through the work and the sacrifice and the cost of Christ and looks at him fondly rejoicing, you are a man after my own heart. Not convinced yet. What about Paul, formerly Saul? What does he say about himself in Galatians? He says, for for have you heard of my former way of life? Are you familiar with it? I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart, was pleased, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, it pleased God to knock Saul off his horse for multiple reasons but ultimately to save him, not to stop him. Brothers and sisters, God longs to rejoice over those who are lost and are found, who are dead and become alive. There's a party. Do we celebrate that well? Do we rejoice in hearing those who are self-loathing and doubtful, full of shame and angst and rebellion, and they turn And they approach the Father. Do we have the same heart as the Father? Or are we more like the older brother? Who was working in the field? Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Something I want to acknowledge if you're questioning whether there's a self-righteous streak in you. There's ways in which we can figure out if it's true. 
One of the ways is there is a greater desire to talk about brothers and sisters with with other people than to go to God with them. Notice the older brother doesn't go in to find out what's going on. He calls a servant. He'd rather be insulated from whatever's taking place than to go in and participate himself. He would rather just ask a question, what's going on? He's a son, is he not? Can he go be a part of the party? Absolutely, but the self-righteous has a difficulty in seeing someone other celebrated and not themselves. It's a difficulty rejoicing when someone else has been found than rejoicing over what they're currently doing. And so what does this brother do? What's the reaction? When he, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. He threw himself a pity party. And he wanted to invite all of you with him. He got angry. He got upset. This brother who has squandered the family's wealth, who's rebelled against my father, who's cast shame on my father, who has treated him poorly. How dare he come back? But then he's angry. Wait, why? Why is my father entertaining this? This doesn't compute. So the father came out and pleaded with him. I think the biggest thing that's missed in the parable of the lost son is there's two lost sons. One is lost out of a rebellion to go out and leave, but the other has been present yet is still rebellious because he's not like his father. He does the things of the father, but is not like the father. He knows of the father, but doesn't experience life like the father. Instead of rejoicing that his brother is back, he's angry. This is not the way it works. This is not how it ought to be. And look at his response. So the father comes out and pleads with him. The father goes to both of his sons. Brothers and sisters, it's sometimes easier to offer grace to those who are are, are overtly rebellious. It's difficult to offer grace to those who are covertly rebellious. I say as one who was that. It's hard to offer grace to the person who should know better. But the father demonstrates. He goes out to the son and pleads with him, come in. Join us. But this is the retort. Verse 29, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving away years for you and you've never, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Did you say boat? Because I would understand a boat, but a goat? You just want a goat? One thing to know about self-righteous streak is they long to celebrate with other self-righteous people. I just want to celebrate. Give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. In my fiefdom, in my world where they celebrate me. Look at all my works. I've never, dis, uh, I've never told a lie. I've never broken a commandment. I've done everything that you've told me to do. So celebrate me. What? Two sons are lost. The older just happened to be a lot closer, but nonetheless was not with the father when the brother came home. But God's grace is offered to them as well. The self-righteous who want to save themselves point to the exact thing that undoes their relationship with the Father. Look what I have done. Look at my works. Look at my activity and my actions. 
I am deserving to be celebrated. I'm deserving to be rejoiced over. No. And the reason is because rebellion can take many different forms. Like said before, rebellion can be overt. It can be ostentatious. It can be loud. Debauchery, drunkenness, adultery, addiction, abuse. All of that we can see with a glaring eye and point the finger and say, oh, those are rebellious people. But guess what? Rebellion can happen in Sunday school too. We make much about God, but don't truly know him. That we can sit on lofty towers of theological excellence and use it as a club to beat others around us. Rebellion can take many forms. And each of us in here stand as rebels in the reign of God who are in needing of the graciousness of the Father to pay the recompense to reestablish the right relationship. And so the father goes out to the older brother. And this is the father's response. And as a card-carrying Pharisee and tempted to always be so, verse 31 is what undid me. He says, son. He said to him, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Look at what he tells him. The same thing he told the younger son. Son, everything I have is yours. This kingdom is yours to enjoy. But you cared more about the works than the kingdom. You were more enthralled with what you could do rather than who you are. The biggest thing that, the biggest hang up between you and I and putting on the character of Christ is we often come to what I've done or did not do or what I need to do or what I should do. When I look through scripture, it points to very clearly who you are is what matters to me most. Are you my child? Are you a child of God? Are you a son and daughter? He gives both the opportunity. He calls him son. I don't, I don't need you to do works. I don't need you to obey. All, those, all that stuff is there. I'm not trying to undermine the responsiveness to the gospel. But in the core of who we are, he looks at us and gives us our identity. And now we have both camps. What are they to receive? If you're over here, you're jumping for joy because the first time in your life, you now have someone leading you out of your plight and into celebration. And so if you're over here, the the message that Jesus is conveying, you're not that far gone. You're not out of reach. There is no greatness to your rebellion that can't be paid for in in your return. And yet on the other end, the affliction is being exposed that you have not yet arrived. But yes, you can come in and celebrate too. The joy and the celebration of being a part of God's family and seeing someone lost be saved, you can be a part of that. You can celebrate. You can rejoice. But more often than not, what took place by these two groups that listened? The Pharisees remained the accusers. They remain the ones who pointed the finger and says, you are not like me, therefore you do not belong. 
But to the others, they no longer heard the accusations being levied against them because they now had a message that there is one who wants to find me, to restore me to life, a life that I have never known. And so, brothers and sisters, we sit amongst, uh, as a church, and coming after Pastor Jeff's message last week, what was the main thing we talked about? We're a going church. We're ascending church. He's given us the great commission to go and share the gospel, to bring people who are broken, who have a ruined soul, and welcome them in. I think the reason why that has atrophied in our church, not just ours, but Catholic C Church, is because we forgot how to celebrate when a lost person is found, when someone who is dead becomes alive. What does he say? It's a party. There are parties, and then there are parties, and this is the latter. And so do we celebrate that the accusations levied against us and the camps we find ourselves, whether self-loathing or self-righteousness, have been dismantled? They have been undone. And Jesus, in its place, has put in this radical, scandalous grace that says, I want to rejoice over you because you are my creation. You are my sons and my daughters. And so as we leave here today, is there a heart and a desire to rejoice? Do you accept that God wants to rejoice over you as you walk and leave behind a life of destruction and enter into a life of and fruit of the Spirit? Jesus and the Father paid the price, and we reap the celebration. And so as our time of meditation, I want you to think, for those of you who still sit on the outside, who have yet to place their faith You are not so far gone and you're not so far set that the Lord can't work in your heart with either pulling a thread or smashing it with a sledgehammer. Christ can do both. At the same time, he offers, do you want to experience the joy of celebration of being the robe, the ring, the sandals, and the stake? Do you want that party? Church, do you want that party? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, As our Lord and our God, we must come before you and acknowledge that you are holy. That in comparison to you, no one can walk with a swagger in such a capacity to look at you and say, hey, but to fall on our face, as Isaiah said, woe is me. I come from a people of unclean lips, and I myself am an unclean person, and yet you offer us forgiveness and restoration. Lord, so forgive us for our stubbornness, whether in overt rebellion or covert rebellion. Forgive us for our stubbornness to looking at one another and comparing ourselves rather than than celebrating the work that you have done on the cross. So Jesus, in this time of worship, help us to celebrate. Help us to join the songs of heaven that we may see what taking place in heaven here on earth. For Lord, we desire to not receive the glory, but to join you in your glory. Is in these things we pray. Amen. Amen.